Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Elizabeth Farnsworth, PhD, a research biologist with the New England Flower Society and one of the leads on the Go Botany Project, an online resource for discovering thousands of New England plants, including simple and advanced plant identification tools, teaching tools, and a plant share space where you can create your own homepage to catalog your plant discoveries. This also gives you access to Ask a Botanist, where you can ask a question of one of the team from the Go Botany Project. As an online tool, Go Botany serves as an electronic field guide that can help us reconnect in a digitally connected world to the natural landscape and foster ongoing discovery. We also spend some time talking about the idea of citizen science and how we can work to be a part of the scientific process. For those of you who listen to this show and Jen Mendez of permikids.com, there are some thoughts within this interview with Elizabeth that would be useful for anyone, be they a teacher or a parent, who wants to develop a passion for discovery that extends from us to our children that we can then use to integrate permaculture more readily into their lives. Before we begin, a few quick updates. The show is on the road so that I can report on events of interest to the growing movements that are involved in building a better world and to continue to spread the word of this wonderful system of design we call permaculture. Next up, I'll be going to ChabaCon in Bridgeton, New Jersey, on October 11, 2014, where Lester Brown of the Earth Policy Institute will be the keynote speaker for a day of lectures, discussions, and tours on how to transform the world we live in. After that, I'll be in Roanoke, Virginia from October 20th through the 22nd, interviewing farmers and local permaculture practitioners. I'm also going to be delivering a presentation, Permaculture, Creating a Better World by Design, at 6.30 p.m. on October 21st, 2014 at the Roanoke Natural Food Co-op in Grandin Village. If you're in the area, I'd love to see you there or at any of the other events I'll be attending. More on those as they are scheduled. If you value this show and the work of the podcast in spreading the word of permaculture to the world, lend your assistance in supporting these projects. Share links posted to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, with your friends or followers. Retweet messages sent from at permaculturecst. Leave reviews on iTunes or your favorite podcast sites. The show can also use your financial support, either as a one-time or ongoing monthly contributor. Find out how to do that at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Now then, on to Dr. Elizabeth Farnsworth. Elizabeth, Dr. Farnsworth, could you give us a little bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing? And then we can talk about Go Botany and the role of the citizen scientist. Sure. I am actually trained as a tropical biologist. I worked all over the world for my dissertation working on mangrove ecosystems, the coastal tropical forests. But after a decade of perambulating around the globe, I came back to New England and accepted a job here as a conservation biologist, uh, first with the Nature Conservancy, and really decided that it would be a good idea to put my efforts and energies into working with conservation on this landscape um, and, you know, helping to protect the legacy of, of biodiversity that we have here in New England. And through that job, I became involved um, actually as something of a citizen scientist with New England Wildflower Society because we, uh, as an organization, have a large consortium of 
conservation organizations, academic institutions, who all work together to conserve the New England landscape. And so I came to know uh, New England Wildflower Society and all the projects that they were involved in. And I thought to myself, boy, it would be really interesting to work here. And uh, after a, a short stint in academics as a professor at Smith College and also a National Science Foundation postdoc, I was lucky enough to be offered a job with New England Wildflower Society and have worked there for about 15 years ever since in a whole bunch of different capacities. I mean, basically, I love the organization and I would wash windows if I had to. Realize as you were talking about the New England Wildflower Society that one of my past guests is listed as one of the research botanists there, Arthur Hayne. Arthur and I uh, collaborated very closely. He was writing the uh, Flora Novi Angliae, or the Flora of New England, which is the most up-to-date and really comprehensive flora of the region. He's one of the smartest botanists I've ever known. And uh, I was working with him, actually uh, doing illustrations for the Flora Novi Angliae. So he and I collaborated closely as I was doing the artwork to accompany his, his keys. Though Arthur and I spent most of our time talking about foraging and wild foods and some of his primitive skills practices. So, But I wanted to talk with you today about the first part of this, is about the Go Botany website and the work that you're doing there. That's how I first encountered you at the Millersville Native Plant Conference, um, as you were speaking about that. And for the listeners of this show... I found that website to be a great resource for people who want to learn about plants in many different capacities. And so I was wondering if you could speak with us about how that came about, why you chose the information that's on that site, and also how comprehensive it is. If I remember right, you said there are about 3,500 plants listed? That's right. So we actually conceived of GoBotany initially as sort of a digital portal for the new Flora Novi Angliae that Arthur Haynes had written. We wanted to provide a website that had comprehensive information on all of the native and naturalized species, subspecies, and varieties of plants in New England. We quickly realized as part of that goal that we could develop a pretty innovative teaching tool that would actually appeal to a whole new generation of real technology-minded people. And we really sought a way to kindle the next generation's interest in plants. It's a bit of a, a subversive enterprise, as all teaching arguably is. You attract students to the natural world through their obsession with technology. And it sounds a little ironic, but it actually has worked. And we all know that there's some great apps out there, you know, for birders and uh, folks with other interests in the natural world. And we thought we could probably build on some of these models to create a fun tool for getting people to learn how to observe and identify and appreciate plants. And I have seen folks, everyone from age 8 to 80, identify plants in the field using their phones with high school students in an after-school program with the Yale Peabody Museum in New Haven. They've been using GoBotany to identify invasive plants and also ferns. And um, I've, I think one of the most gratifying uh, moments in the development of GoBotany was to actually see a 15-year-old boy from, from the city, Worcester, Mass., identify a grass in, a grass in less than 10 minutes, which is a, a challenging thing for even an experienced botanist to do. 
The development of GoBotany took place over about four years. Uh, it was funded by the National Science Foundation, your tax dollars at work, and it took seriously a village. At one point, we had about 32 people working on the project. Uh, we had computer programmers Skyping in from as far away as Newfoundland and Los Angeles. The timing for those phone calls was, was always a challenge. And uh, we had four full-time professional botanists putting in data, thousands and thousands of fields of data, lots of information about every individual plant species that we were working on. We had dozens of photographers and illustrators donating images to the project. It was really a tremendous and very comprehensive effort. The amount of information that's available via the website is absolutely incredible. And I think about all the times that I've been out with a field guide and trying to cross-reference between one book or another and finding some pieces of conflicting information or descriptions that were incomplete and being left not really knowing what I had in front of me. Exactly. There's nothing um, sort of more aggravating than having to carry a separate field guide for every classification of plant you want. I mean, I, it's a little ironic for me to say this, of course, because I, I wrote the Peterson Field Guide to the Ferns, uh, along with co-authors a, a number of years ago. And of course, it's, it's very macho for a botanist to go out in the field and be lugging 600 pounds of, of field guides in their backpack. But GoBotany really does sort of provide one-stop shopping for all the different types of plants, whether they're aquatic plants or grass-like plants or ferns. We really envision this as sort of a, a next-generation field guide. And when you said about technology and education and involving people through that path, my wife helps raise money for the Boy Scouts every year. And when we met with some of their directors, that was one of the things that they were talking about is trying to adjust their work and their programs because most of their scouts now have smartphones with them. I joke about it sometimes that I have better reception on my smartphone when I'm out hunting than I do at my house. Some of the tools, though, that I've used there to track using the GPS that I can tag where I am in the woods if I find something interesting and that I'm able to go back and find it. Exactly. I mean, the capacity of technology to allow us to record data, record interesting observations that we're making on the landscape, you can use GoBotany to identify an interesting plant, and who knows, you might have actually found a rare plant at a particular location, and through GoBotany or a number of other sort of citizen science portals, you can upload a photograph instantly get some feedback, some help with identification of that plant from an expert, record the sighting uh, with all of the GPS coordinates, and be able to sort of instantly make that information available to a wider interested audience online. And at the same time, you've been able to sort of record your own observation and you know, learn something new um, about things that you're actually seeing in real time. And what I like about the GoBotany site, I just pulled up one of the plant profiles, in this case for dill. I will not try to use my um, botanical Latin. It's a little weak. But here you have some facts about the plant, its habitat, its characteristics, where it can be found in New England. But also on the side here, there's a nice map that also shows its distribution throughout North America. And that's one of the things that I like about this resource. I'm kind of just south in Pennsylvania of the area that GoBotany covers. 
but there's still a lot of very useful information here for not only identifying plants, but finding out more about them. Exactly. I mean, there's an awful lot of overlap between the flora of New England and the flora of Pennsylvania, the flora of the mid-Atlantic coastal plain, all the way up into Quebec and Nova Scotia, and all the way west to, you know, Ohio. So, I mean, there's, there, there's an awful lot of common species there. We uh, obtained uh, the information about the distribution of uh, plants in North America, actually from the Biota of North America project, which is a national uh, sort of atlas uh, of plant species, uh, tremendously useful source of data. Uh, and so we were able to work uh, cooperatively with uh, BONAP, uh, as it's known, and, and John Cartes, who, who uh, shared some of his data with us. And the nice thing about GoBotany is that we can continually update it. So if there's a particular plant species that may not have been seen in Pennsylvania until you happen to walk out to some interesting site and spotted it, we can actually update that information really on the fly to reflect new discoveries and the fact that plants are constantly moving around, the fact that climate change is changing some of the, the ranges of, of some of these species. So the nice thing about a website, as opposed to sort of a static book, is that we're able to continuously correct and update and refine the information. So the GoBotany project is an ongoing living database of information that you'll continue to work with as long as you can. Absolutely. And uh, one of the other benefits of it is that we can adapt the database to suit different floras. So, you know, we have a, a database that comprehensively covers thousands of species in New England, but we've been approached, for example, and worked with the Smithsonian Institution to adapt the GoBotany database to cover all of the orchid species of North America. So they can use the same sort of GoBotany type front-end interface that is, you know, available free on the web. And our software, we gave them the data on orchid species that we had put together for New England. And the Smithsonian are working with a number of other botanic gardens across the country, the Atlanta Botanic Garden, the Alaska Botanic Garden, all of whom are entering data on the orchids of their regions and thus expanding the database. And they've developed something called Go Orchids <laughs> for the North American Orchid Conservation Center um, because they saw this as an opportunity to get people involved in identifying orchids and also expanding the database to include other types of information on orchid species. So it's been really fun to uh, see how GoBotany's software and database architecture can be adapted to different regions. And, and most recently, we've actually begun working, collaborating with a group, the Native Orchid Society of South Australia, who would like to adapt GoBotany-type interface for all of the orchids of South Australia. I'm hoping for a field trip. It would be a beautiful place to go and to see your work and everything firsthand, and get to enjoy some of that wonderful Australian Southern Hemisphere, and the ocean, and the beaches, and all the poisonous and venomous critters. Exactly, and we could create a, a GoBotany interface for all of those wonderful things down under that are trying to kill you. <laughs> it's a beautiful and very dangerous place. <laughs> Actually, just what I was thinking, a Go Deadly species. 
I nearly came to a, a sorry end early in my life by sitting on a funnel web spider, which is one of the more poisonous, uh, venomous spiders in South Australia. <laughs> so, I've also been been working in in Australian mangroves when the um, estuary and crocodiles were nesting. So, you know. You make the life of a biologist sound very much more exciting and interesting than when I was considering becoming a marine biologist. It's actually true. Uh, one of the when I do give talks uh, on the botanical work that uh, we do at New England Wildflower Society, one of our our former employees uh, went to graduate school and actually was studying the the botany of hammock forests in Florida in the Everglades region. And, uh, of course, alligators create interesting sort of local microhabitats for particular um, suites of plants. And so I have a wonderful picture of her. She's a botanist, of course, straddling a six-foot-long alligator <laughs> that they've been actually tagging as part of another study. So I just always make the point that, you know, botanists, we always sort of think of, of botanists as a, a milk-toasty bunch, but we're just as macho as an ex-biologist. I... Grew up with those images of Indiana Jones out as the archaeologist going and exploring. And now that I imagine you putting on your fedora as you prepare to go out and practice biology and botany. And I think that if more children saw that, that it would make the STEM fields much more exciting and interesting at a young age. Yeah, I think so too, because I certainly as a kid was inspired by, you know, the, the Jacques Cousteau specials and series and and National Geographic series and things, you know, looking at, at how field biologists and marine biologists, you know, were going to these far-flung places and discovering these amazing, amazing uh, animals and plants, and, and that just totally inspired me. And, you know, we have a, a new generation who are inspired by Indiana Jones or David Attenborough, you know, um, going to these fabulous and interesting places. And, and I think, yes, being able to convey to kids that, you know, even the study of something that they think is as boring as plants, you know, plants being these sort of static organisms and they all look alike and they're all just kind of green, you know. But in fact, the study of plants can take you to really amazing places and plants themselves are full of really fascinating behaviors that kids should learn more about. And all the interesting chemicals that are produced that we as human beings enjoy. All these different ways that plants interact with us in order to live out their life cycles as part of the larger biosphere. Absolutely. And uh, not to mention, of course, the fact that plants are the lungs of the planet. That's kind of important. From there, part of my background is in environmental education, which is very, in many cases, informal because I'm not on an MED track for like a high school curriculum. Rather, I'm on an MS track, which is for museums, science centers, or people who are going to be just teaching to the public. And that's where part of my interest is, is getting children and their families interested in science and the natural world early, and so that everyone can work together cooperatively to really build on the experience and an understanding of the world at large and of the sciences and as David Orr and David Sobel suggest to help to develop a sense of place and to care about the area where the children and their parents are. And I was wondering if we might be able to speak some to that about the idea of the citizen scientist and 
how we can engage adults and children in the practice of science and exploring the world. You've raised a very important point about not simply reaching out to young kids who, uh, at least early on, have a built-in sense of enthusiasm and a wonder about the world and a, a real desire to explore and see what's kind of around the next bend. But it's very, very critical to, at the same time, engage their parents in realizing that, you know, science is fun and the natural world is not a big, scary, threatening thing and that their kids don't necessarily need to be programmed for 14 hours a day, um, that, that playtime can lead to discovery. And in fact, most scientists, I think, are at heart very playful people. Uh, they're very curious about the natural world. And all of us who try and do education for kids and their parents and their teachers really want to kindle that kind of curiosity. And it's just a short step from looking at something and puzzling over it and wondering, gosh, I wonder what that's doing, or I wonder what the name of that is. Or what's that bug doing on that plant? And why isn't it over here? The minute you start asking some of these fun why questions, you're beginning to do science. But I think a, a big challenge is in helping adults overcome a lack of confidence, a sense that, oh, well, I never knew science that well, so I can't really speak about scientific phenomena to my kids. I don't know what the name of that plant is, and therefore I'm basically sort of shutting myself off from this whole experience. You know, there's a, there's a fair amount of, of almost threat or, or lack of confidence that, you know, impedes people's motivation for getting out and just simply spending some unstructured time out there. One thing that I think can draw in adults and kids is participation in a citizen science type project, something that is relatively easy to do, that the process of gathering information is not particularly onerous, that it's not a very steep learning curve. You don't have to learn all sorts of new technology or use special instruments in order to measure things, but that engages people in answering some sort of real-world question that matters to them. And gives them the sense that they're contributing to a broader and very important scientific effort. What are some of the citizen scientist projects and programs that are out there that people could look for and get involved with? Well, there's a whole range. They, they really run the gamut. My first involvement with citizen science came many years ago when I was working with Earthwatch, with the Earthwatch Institute which is an informal program that actually sends adults and in some cases, you know, children or teenagers to exotic locations around the world to work with scientists. And in fact, we uh, hosted uh, collaborator and I teams of Earthwatch volunteers. And they each came in for two weeks and uh, stayed with us um, at a remote location in Belize and helped us gather some of the first data we were ever able to, to get on mangrove ecosystems. And so we volunteers to do everything from counting insects on leaves to snorkeling underwater and looking at what was growing on the mangrove roots and 
you know, really engaging them in the full range of research that we were doing. And one of the most fascinating learning parts of that project for us was the challenge of having to explain the relevance of your science, you know, to people who in their ordinary lives are doctors and lawyers and A-type personalities and overachievers, <laughs> but who may or may not have a lot of experience in doing scientific research. And so it helped both of us, I think, become more effective communicators about why we do science and why what we were studying at the time was important and, and relevant on a day-to-day -day basis. So Earthwatch trips are sort of science tourism in, in a certain way, yet volunteers are actually contributing very meaningful data as part of, of, of that experience. So that's one type of citizen science. There are a lot of projects out there now that engage citizen scientists you know, through apps, you know, through their smartphones. They can go out and gather data on the presence of invasive species. There's a, a program called EDMAPS, E-D-D-M-A-P-S, that engages people in developing an atlas of invasive species, and that allows for early detection of some new um, plants that are coming into an area. We have uh, more prolonged sort of citizen science and, and very participatory citizen science programs here right at New England Wildflower Society. We, every year, train a core of people called our plant conservation volunteers, or our PCVs, who are amateur botanists, uh, no previous experience really required. We train volunteers to go out and monitor populations of rare plants on the landscape, and we have a core of over 700 volunteers who have been trained over the last decade to go out, recognize rare plant species, take very detailed data on them, fill out those data in field forms that they then submit to our natural heritage programs in each of the six New England states. So this program uh, spans all of New England. And what is wonderful about this is that the number of trained botanists and professional botanists who are available to go out and monitor thousands of rare plant populations is really pretty limited. So by training PCVs, our plant conservation volunteers, we've expanded the number of people who are actually able to go out and look at these, these rare plants. So it has brought many more eyeballs on the landscape. We have PCVs who have been with the program for a very long time who now go out and regularly discover new rare plant populations and report those. So it really extends the, the capacity of the scientists in the field. And at the same time, it's fun because a lot of plant conservation volunteers go out together. There ends up being sort of a, a social dimension to the gathering of data. So not only is it fun to go out on a treasure hunt, to a particular site and find a rare plant population, but it becomes somewhat of a, a collaborative uh, enterprise. We also offer sort of perks to our plant conservation volunteers, workshops in identifying plants, opportunities for them to get together as a cadre of people who share similar kinds of interests. So they come back year after year and really love to interact with each other and tell each other what they've found and challenge each other to find new things. 
So those are the sort of three different kinds of citizen science programs, you know, the sort of ecotourism, science tourism, using your smartphone to gather data and contribute more information to the cloud, and then more of a hands-on plant conservation volunteer program. And I've seen similar programs for songbirds and bats, owls, and such. I'll do a little bit of research then and see if I can list a variety of different available programs so that listeners can go out and see if there are similar opportunities where they live. And I can definitely get you some some references on that too. There are definitely a lot of sort of citizen science portals or clearinghouses out there that in which you can actually see a lot of different types of citizen science opportunities. And there are similar types of resources for scientists themselves who want to found their own citizen science type project or engage uh, citizen scientists in gathering data for their own projects. So there's a lot of information out there. When you were talking about your PCVs going out and finding rare plant communities on their own now, I can only imagine how satisfying that is for the members of your community when that happens. I had a listener yesterday contact me who's here in Pennsylvania, and they sent me pictures from when they were out walking the woods near their home, and they sent photographs back to me of Indian pipe or corpse plant, something that I have not personally encountered. And to know that those were pictures that were taken within minutes of when I received them, and that they're here in the area, and how encouraging that is for me because they're something that I really want to see in person. Yeah, it gets you curious. You know, you've just seen something that you've never seen before, and somebody's shared this with you, and, you know, now you want to go out and, and find it yourself, you know? And, and it's that kind of almost infectious, um, you know, subtle kind of, you know, even peer pressure that, you know, just would draw you outside and say, boy, I just, I want to go find that plant, or I want to go, you know, see that bug for myself. Um, there are other sorts of collaborative uh, online, you know, portals or, or virtual communities, if you will, um, that allow people to share with each other in real time. Uh, one that comes to mind for me is, is something called bugguide.net, uh, which is this very interactive community of, of amateurs, you know, of people who just are basically interested in, you know, interested in bugs, but certainly by no means necessarily professional entomologists. You know, the site is uh, moderated by people who run the gamut from, you know, amateur to expert to professional, but you can get instant help in identifying a particular insect. So you go out, you take a picture with your smartphone of some weird moth, and you post it to Bug Guide. And generally within 24 hours, you'll get somebody coming back to you, usually with some sort of definitive identification or with a request for more information. It's the power of crowdsourcing because, you know, you have an audience of thousands of people who are all sort of looking at this site and saying, oh, hang on, I know what that moth is. You know, so it's, uh, and by virtue of, of just sort of sharing with that community, you're not necessarily contributing to a particular science project, so it's not necessarily a targeted, quote-unquote, citizen science project, but yet that community as a whole is generating an enormous amount of data that help us understand the distribution of particular insect species, 
a tremendous inflow of information that then can be used by scientists to understand the insects of, of the world a lot more comprehensively. Are you finding that there is a lot more information flow between people who are hobbyists and amateurs who are interested and the formal scientific community now than there was maybe even 10 years ago? Or is that just a, a misconception of mine from the outside? No, I think that there is a lot more back and forth. There's a, a lot of building interest in the scientific community to really begin to tap into this expertise that lies outside of the formally trained academic community. And as a result, you know, scientists are, are beginning to incorporate citizen science much more frequently into their research designs because they see interested people as eminently capable of gathering interesting data and becoming part of a whole community of, of people contributing to a particular project. So as an example, recently there have been a couple of special issues of some relatively high-profile biological journals. Bioscience, which is the publication of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and also uh, Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution, both of those journals carried special issues about citizen science and its rising importance in the scientific community and the frequency, increasing frequency of, of scientific studies that are really encouraging and, and utilizing citizen scientists. And through developing these kinds of citizen science projects, I think scientists are, are realizing how important it is to communicate to a broader community. And in fact, that's been somewhat codified by the funding agencies. The big funding agencies, for example, like the National Science Foundation, when you are submitting a grant proposal to NSF, you need to demonstrate very convincingly that not only does your scientific project have what's called intellectual merit, you know, is this a cutting-edge scientific question, are you going to make real progress in a scientific discipline, but you also have to demonstrate something called broader impacts, which really gets at the heart of making sure that your science is relevant to the community well beyond simply the scientific establishment. And citizen science is one way to both encourage people to become involved in scientific endeavor and also to communicate the value of scientific discovery. I really appreciate hearing that and knowing the direction where th things are going. Having spent some time grant writing and trying to <laughs> both understand the application clearly enough to meet those requirements, but also to ensure that all of the necessary information was included, uh, that can be quite an interesting experience. But also having spent a semester of my graduate program studying nothing but environmental communication and communication theory about how educators can be in a place to bridge the gap between the formal journals and scientific articles and the public at large. And the need for better communication and to be able to remove the jargon and explain clearly, or if we're going to use a particular term to define it and make it accessible. And how, as you said in the beginning, how education and science can become very subversive as you get people engaged and involved in the process. I love this. It's such a great time to be doing all of this kind of work. 
and to be engaged in seeing the difference that all of us can make by exploring our interests and finding our niche and allowed to pursue a calling. Yeah, and I mean, I love the notion that by getting more people participating in science, whether or not they're scientists, you know, we're, we're all scientists at some level, uh, if we're at all curious about the world around us. But it's a wonderful way to demystify the practice of science. There's still a, a, a pretty clear divide in our society between people who consider themselves scientists and those people who don't necessarily subscribe to the scientific method or quote-unquote believe in science. And it's very important, I think, to burst a lot of the stereotypes about scientists, you know, that uh, we're part of a priesthood who speak a strange language using only Latin words and Greek symbols, who can't communicate to the real world, who are geeky and nerdy and, you know, somehow removed from the basics of everyday life. Well, we've got to burst that stereotype and make sure that everybody kind of knows, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you wonder if it's sunny outside, you're sort of asking a scientific question. <laughs> it was your live presentation and the vibrancy in life that you brought to it that I really enjoyed and was part of why I wanted to speak with you. And as you talk about this, I think about an interview that I did with Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp who is one of the first researchers who was looking into colony collapse disorder. And he and I had a conversation and it was, I walked away from it feeling here is a man who loves bees so much that he went and studied them until he became an expert in them and has a PhD in, in that kind of work. But in our conversation, it was about that passion that he had for this and that that's why he went in that direction and pursued these things, but that any of us can have that fire inside of us and to pursue something that we have an interest in and love, whether we decide to do it formally or informally, and that there are many individuals on the spectrum of research and discovery who can interact and learn more about the world so that we can create a better world together that supports people, plants, animals, the biosphere, and really make a difference for all of us. And thank you for being part of that conversation. Thanks for starting that conversation. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I think all enthusiasm begins with this sort of basic curiosity and a, a basic love of what you do. You know, it's very easy to be enthusiastic and convey that enthusiasm because it just comes naturally. You know, there's nothing I love better than going out and wondering, boy, what is that bug on that plant? Or what is that plant? Or what's it doing here? Wow, look how beautiful the flowers are. This is, this is amazing. It's very easy then to convey that kind of enthusiasm. And it gets picked up by people who you're with. When we have groups of kids come to our flagship botanic garden, Garden in the Woods, in Framingham, Mass., Many of those kids hail from urban schools, elementary schools. You know, the, the amount of exposure that they've actually had to any sort of natural green space is, is very limited. And so what I consider as a measure of success for those trips and those field trips and those kids is to start out by showing them an earthworm 
And, you know, the first reaction on the part of the kids and, of course, their teachers and their chaperones is, ew! And then you gradually work them past that because you've actually got this earthworm and it's in your hand and it's crawling all over you. And they realize, okay, well, she's not, she's not freaking out. <laughs> this is pretty interesting. So what happens if I touch that earthworm? And so you progress from the ew factor to the oh wow factor when they sort of touch that earthworm and it kind of squirms around. And then if by the end of a walk around the garden, I actually have kids throwing earthworms at each other. I consider that a really successful trip. You've really made an impression there. And, you know, you almost never get the parents or the teachers throwing earthworms at each other. But if you can get the kids doing that and the parents and the teachers can see how much fun those kids are having, you know, you've made an impression with them, too. The story that you just told is very reflective of some experiences that I've had at a local nature center teaching about vermicomposting. I can open up my bin and it just has kind of an earthy smell to it. It's not repulsive in any way. And the kids will come over and in one hand, I'll have this big wriggling mass of red wiggler worms that the children will want to play with. And then on my fingertips of my left hand, I'll have the egg casings that the worms have laid. And some of them will be open and they'll be able to see where the baby worms emerged. But then there will be other ones that still have those small worms forming inside of them. And the kids will be ooing and aahing, and they'll be picking up the worms and touching them, and the parents will be going, oh, that's gross. Then I'll be talking about the bin, and I'll show the eggshells that are in there, and talk about how the eggshells provide some calcium that will allow the worm's skin to thicken. And then I start talking about using red wigglers to go fishing. And then the dads and the moms come in, and they go, really? There are some good trout streams around here, so we could, we could have one of these bins and raise worms for our garden and for fishing? And then the entire family's involved. Absolutely. Another great gateway species is, I'm shooting myself in the foot here, of course, because I want to encourage much more discovery about plants. Um, plants are definitely the gateway species for a lot of adults, which is really nice because gardening is such an amazing activity. It's a very, very, one of the, the top sort of recreational activities or sort of extracurricular activities that adults engage in in, in the U.S. But ants, ants are another really great species to engage people's interest. Um, I just wrote a field guide to the ants of New England. And the wonderful thing about ants is that you're never more than about six inches away from one. In the height of summer, they're everywhere. And if you can get people past the sort of qualms of, you know, looking at these insects and, oh, they're going to bite or they're going to sting and make them realize that actually very, very few ants ever bite or sting, or they are really tiny, and even if they try to bite you, you're not going to feel it. I had a wonderful experience a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a wonderful art exhibit up in Maine by a group called the Ant Girls, who is an, an artistic collaborative uh, who created a huge exhibit on ants. And we had the opportunity afterwards to, to take up whole bunch of kids and their parents out to behind this the, the campus of the university where the, this exhibit had been mounted. And it took all of five seconds for the kids to progress from, you know, sort of standing around looking at ants, you know, who are active in the pavement to learning how to catch them. And then pretty soon you had dozens of kids walking up to me and saying, okay, I got one, I got one, what's that one? And realizing that, you know, these ants, they come in a rainbow of colors and all different sizes and all sorts of different habitats and nesting behaviors and all sorts of things. And, and it is wonderful to see that aha moment 
when the kids suddenly realize, wow, there's this whole universe of, of incredibly interesting social insects that we really had no idea about. And then their parents suddenly realize, wow, that's pretty fascinating, and it wouldn't take very much for me to get my, my kids enthusiastic about that, or even me to overcome my fear of carpenter ants and get out there and discover them. So. My favorite way to engage adults when it comes to plants is by getting them to eat their yard, even if something as simple as the common violet and eating that flower. Or one of my favorite snacks that my wife will plant around the garden because that's how she gets me to do more and more yard work is leave food where I can find it is nasturtiums. And I feel like I, one day if I ever get motivated enough, I'll need to write a book that's just called Eat the World and use it as a, as a way to get people to explore the world through food and edibles. That sounds like a great idea. You know, the wonderful thing about that, too, is that, you know, you don't have to be living in an area that has, you know, acres of open space for you to create, you know, a whole victory garden and a little farm and everything else. I mean, you can grow edible plants easily and very aesthetically, you know, on a patio in the inner city. So, you know, nasturtiums will do just as well, you know, on a rooftop garden in downtown Boston as they will in a backyard in Pennsylvania. And really driving home the utility of plants and how easy they really are to grow is one way to get people much more involved. Then, Elizabeth, Dr. Farnsworth, I really thank you for this time. We've covered a wide range of ideas and ways that people can get involved in science and learn more about the world around them. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners before we draw this to a close? I think that there are a burgeoning number of opportunities for people to engage in the practice of science, whether it be simply chasing their own curiosity and getting out in the world and, and just trying to explore, or hooking up with a more formal sort of scientific project or study, or so pursuing the intermediate where you become involved in a very active online community like GoBotany's PlantShare community or BugGuide.net or uh, Merlin through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. There's just an enormous range of activities that you can undertake as an individual that suddenly introduce you to the fact that science is an everyday kind of enterprise and can really feed your curiosity in, in wonderful ways. I think we hear an awful lot of doomsday kinds of predictions. We're, we're sort of bombarded in the news day after day with uh, the notion that, you know, bees are dying of colony collapse disorder and climate change is changing, you know, the temperature and rainfall patterns and Oh, species are going extinct. While all of that is in fact true, the only way that we're going to be able to really address our own shortcomings as a species and to tackle some of these very, very serious problems is through learning much more about the natural world, about its utility to us and also its wonder. And if we can get more people just happily being outdoors and engaging with other species and the living world, I think it makes us all a little bit more optimistic 
that despite major global problems and war and just lots of bad news, that actually life will out, so to speak. Um, life is, is resilient and it's wondrous and there's just an awful lot of great stuff to discover out there. And that was Elizabeth Farnsworth. Each of us is a scientist. Let's wake up each morning asking why and explore the world around us a little bit more. If you want to take this a step further, connect with citizen science programs like EdMaps or the Earthwatch Institute and get involved. Add your interest and passion to the body of human knowledge and in turn to the body of permaculture knowledge. Together we can create an abundant world together. If there's anything I can do to help you on your path, let me know. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. You can even send me an old-fashioned letter if you'd like via the post. That address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, P.A., 17018. Until the next time, create a better world, the world you want to live in, each day by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.